Psychology Nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of your hosts, and I'm here, as always, with my friend, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Dor- Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Did Hi. I just butcher your name again? Yep, you almost called me a dork, I think. <laughs> hey, Georgina. My um, friend and dork, which was not wrong, actually. <laughs> well, that's a nice segue into your homework assignment from last time. Do you remember the assignment that I gave you last time? Oh, goodness. No, I don't. <laughs> Remind me. <laughs> I asked you to ask Siri, since I've discovered I was pronouncing it incorrectly, yes. Siri, to say your name. And tell me if Siri was doing it correctly or if I was doing it correctly. Gosh, darn it, I did not. But I will. I promise. Like, can I have an extension on my homework, please? <laughs> you can at 10% off per day, uh, which is my uh, late policy. All right. Um, I I'm going to have to have to use that, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. I do want uh, Georgina's students to take note of her negligence here and feel free to, <laughs> to use this against her. If, uh, if they have a late assignment, uh, bring this up, say, Hey, you know what? I remember a time when, um, how are you otherwise? I am doing great. You know, it is the fall season. And so I think this episode is going to drop right before my least favorite holiday, which is Halloween. And I, I know that like this, this is where Ryan and I like, Mm-hmm. Just do not agree. Spooky season is not my season. And it's going to relate to what we're talking about uh, today, a little bit about childhood adverse experiences. <laughs> and I had a, a not quite traumatic, but uh, a pretty negative uh, childhood experience with the haunted house. And ever since then, I have despised spooky season. However, you, Ryan, love spooky season. I do indeed. This October is, in my opinion, far and away the best month uh, for a variety of reasons. I can, however, be sensitive to the fact that you had uh, an adverse childhood experience <laughs> surrounding <laughs> Halloween and and appreciate that and not, not expose you to, to such trauma again. But I will tell you, I, I am a fan of October in every way. Whether I associate with soccer, which is just about my favorite thing. Uh, I enjoy Halloween, not just for the candy, but for the scares, uh, all of that. So I am, uh, I am very, very, very happy. And your background, for those of you who can't see it, because this is the podcast, <laughs> is a thousand percent speaking my language right now. So yes. I like the fall. I like the change of leaves. It's great. Fall foliage, I am ready to go. I'm <laughs> like, love it. All right, so let's uh, let's use that as a segue into our uh, guests for today. So we have some fabulous guests today. First, he needs no introduction. He's been on the show many times before. He's an associate professor and vice chair of the psychology department here at UW-Green Bay. He researches the neural development of moral judgment, moral action, self-control, empathy, and pro-social behavior. You've heard him on the show before talking about things like schizophrenia, sleep, and even Phineas Gage. It's Dr. Jason Cowell. How are you, Jason? Great. Great to be back on the show. And uh, one thing to add to that, uh, which the other guest is a part of, is that we're now studying a lot on 
the topic for today. So early life stress as it impacts all those kinds of things in adulthood. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So real quick, before we get to our other guest, what is your take on uh, October? Are you pro or are you uh, against? Where do you stand? Uh, I'm not a big Halloween fan, but I, because, you know, there was a previous podcast years ago where we were talking about fear and mm -hmm. horror movies and, and it's just not my cup of tea, but uh, I do love fall. So I, I love riding out in the leaves and all of that stuff. It's a, so that part I like, the fear is not so much for me. Speaking of adult stresses, I believe you used the phrase uh, sphincter tightening in that very episode, Jason, <laughs> and I've been unable to cleanse it from my brain ever since. <laughs> multiple times I might have used it, which is even uh, yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> listeners, go back. It was live from the Widener. Uh, just don't watch it with your children because of Dr. Cowell's. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, all right. Let's introduce our uh, our other guest. Um, Jason brought a friend. She's a psychology major here at UW-Green Bay, working in Dr. Cowell's lab. You've heard her on the show last year talking about her research on neuroprocessing and anxiety. It's all around super student Karsten Cowan. How's it going, Karsten? Good. Thanks for having me. Your take on October, since I'm asking everyone. I couldn't agree with Georgina more. I can't oh. lie. Okay. I had a bad haunted house experience as a kid and I cannot go back. I refuse, but I love fall. Fall's one of my favorites. I uh, go. three yeah. to one, Ryan. I know. Spooky I really, season is a no. <laughs> I really lost out. I should preface this. I'm not a big fan of haunted houses either. Um, I will tell you, uh, maybe this will be something later on in the show. We took our kids to the, uh, to the, the whatever terror on the Fox for kids day which was too scary for me. So um, I'll give you a sense of, of how, how the experience went. Let's, let's use that as an opportunity to transition to, uh, to today's stuff. Georgina, do you want to take this away? This episode was your Absolutely. idea, and I love it. Absolutely. So I was watching a TED-Ed talk. I, I love like watching TED Talks of all sorts just to grow my brain on a daily basis, learn something I don't know anything about. And I watched a really great uh, TED-Ed talk by Nadine Burke Harris about um, the lifelong impacts of childhood trauma. And it was so fascinating to me. And it was such a like call to action that I thought, it's a great opportunity for us to like share some facts and some information with our resident experts, uh, Jason and Karsten, and then um, maybe talk about ways in which we could um, prevent some of those adverse effects from happening. So um, that's sort of the, the general gist of it, but I'm wondering, Jason, if you could um, talk a little bit about what was the impetus for this TED talk was um, something called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study called ACEs. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that study? Yeah, so um, it's actually a whole different set of studies that came out in the 80s and 90s as people started to become aware of the impact that early life social environment was having on long-term success. Uh, and that's academic success, that's health, that's wealth, that's so many different things. Um, and the ACE survey was one of the first to, to try to get at this. Um, it's from a group, I forget the two scientists, but I know that we have uh, some cues on them, we can say their names. 
um, but they followed over 17,000 people um, and they they were studying adults and they were retrospectively asking questions about their childhood. So they were trying to say, okay, you're adults now, what are the actual things that you're doing? What do you do well? What kinds of things do you struggle in in everyday life? And then they tried to relate that to a lot of the early life experiences they'd had. Part of why they did this is actually off of um, some of the more foundational studies in this field. And that's, um, some of them came from uh, a famous researcher named Michael Meany, and he's out of McGill uh, up in Canada. And he's for quite a while been studying animal models of stress in early life and how that impacts long-term brain development, long-term interactions, how it's, it's where a lot of the field of epigenetics began was actually with him. So the, the crossing of both genetics with environmental inputs, so the nature-nurture crossing in this case. And it started to really bring the entire field of psych, biopsych especially, away from nature versus nurture to how do these interact for it? And honestly, early life stress was one of the first places that they started to see this finding happen. Um, so in the ACEs study, they were asking a lot of questions about how uh, things that you would assume are early life trauma, explicit maltreatment. So that's verbal, emotional, and physical abuse happen, but also some things that we oftentimes don't consider in a, in a lay form, early life stressors. Uh, things like parental neglect, it just it, which is a type of maltreatment, but being not that present either emotionally or physically uh, in early childhood also parental separation, divorce, these kinds of traumatic events that can happen. And usually it's scored before the age of 17. And the cool thing about the ACE that differs from a lot of the other studies is they tried to talk about this as a gradient of risk, that the more of these that you had, the higher the likelihood of a whole host of different mental, physical, et cetera, issues that could happen much later on in life. Um, some of the other studies, so like Michael Meany's, tried to control it a little bit more to look at uh, maternal, well, it's maternal licking behavior. So it's rat pups that were raised, so rat babies that were being raised in really enriched environments versus really non-enriched environments. And they tried to look at, does that impact uh, the likelihood that the rat pup itself will be very um, affectionate towards its own children later on in life? Does it change the neural development? Does it change a DNA methylation, uh, the expression of DNA in these kinds of rats. And it turns out the parent's behavior early on can actually shift DNA methylation in these rat pups and can change things long-term. But if you take those same rat pups that uh, have a genetic propensity towards uh, issue long-term and you have them cross-fostered, which is a hint towards some things we can talk about later. If you put them into a, a really enriched environment, they can actually flourish um, and they don't carry on this abuse begets abuse kind of cycle that we oftentimes talk about. So it's a fascinating thing. The ACE though has followed this long-term and they've tried to, they started off by following and then they followed it a decade later with uh, similar things to see, are these, do these maintain as problematic aspects? And a lot of the stuff they found was um, early cardiovascular issues, early respiratory issues, things like COPD were more common when you got to mental health, uh, it, it was abysmal, frankly. Um, the more of these ACE things, uh, the worse mental health got. It's a starter and we can talk a lot more as we go. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was watching the TED talk and then doing some digging about the ACEs is how common 
these are like, I kind of thought to myself, like, oh, this is something that happens to other people. Like, this doesn't happen to me. Um, Karsten, do you have any thoughts about like, how common these sorts of things are in the research that you're doing? I feel like it was kind of not a rude awakening, but it really opens your eyes to what other people are going through and what they consider traumatic or not traumatic. Because I feel like there's a lot of things on the ACE scale that a lot of people, or even just like in the media, in the mainstream, like people just don't talk about it as a traumatic experience or even as a problem. So I feel like seeing some of those things on the ACE scale was really eye-opening, especially like knowing that it could have those adverse effects later on. I feel like it was just a little bit of a shock. Absolutely. There's one statistic um, that said that like 61% of adults like surveyed throughout like 25 states had reported at least one of the traumatic experiences in childhood before the age of 18. That's a huge number. <laughs> and so I was really shocked at how common they were. Yeah, I, that, this is interesting. The, the timing here is really interesting for me because just this morning we were talking about trauma-related disorders in my psychopathology course, which I know, Karsten, you have, have taken from me last, last year, and I'm sure you remember it all perfectly. Um, but it, one of the interesting things about that is we were actually talking about how it feels to me like the definition of uh, trauma is, is changing a little bit. Um, that what the DSM considers, and I was actually just looking it up because the DSM-5 came out just a few months ago, or excuse me, the 5TR came out just a few months ago. And, you know, the DSM still embraces a, um, a like, look, this is threatened death, this is sexual violence, this is serious injury, and doesn't necessarily embrace the same sort of view of trauma that I think we're talking about right now. Now, they, interestingly, though, in the spirit of that, they, they have changed, um, you know, there is a disorder that moved to the trauma section in the DSM-5 um, called reactive attachment disorder, which does acknowledge some of, of that, does, is sort of the first step, I think, in the DSM, thinking about some of those uh, or like neglect, um, uh, just that, that kind of childhood care as being traumatic. So it's part of what I want to get to is, can we, and this is for either Jason or Carson, can we provide some examples, a, a broad array of examples of what some of these early child or adverse childhood experiences are? I know, Jason, you mentioned things like neglect and things like that, but could we give people a sense of that when we talk about that 61% number? Yeah, for sure. Um, and this is the part that Carson was mentioning because it's a conversation we have a lot in the lab as we get rolling. So we use an ACE in some of our, our research. The scale that was derived from the group, the large project is called the ACE. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one where you're answering questions about things that happened before age 17. Uh, in most cases, they're, they're most interested in ages seven to 17 in a lot of these where it's uh, a well-formed memory of them. But a lot of the instances are ones that they make you think because it's witnessing things, not necessarily having them happen to you still counts in many cases. So it is witnessing one parent disparage another parent or one caregiver disparage another caregiver in front of you counts in, in many of these cases as um, an adverse life event. And so to say that, that more bluntly, it's just if you saw one person 
scream and shout at the other person and try and throw insults that actually counts as witnessing verbal abuse which which usually gets a tag on an ace mm -hmm. um and so it can be and i don't want to call that mild but it can be from all the way from that to what you're talking about which is what a, a dsm definition of trauma would be those are also included on the ace so it, it ranges all the way from witnessing these kinds of things or frankly in many of the cases um, and this is actually true in a lot of the literature on maltreatment where they're doing prospective instead of retrospective. So this is all retrospective studying. Uh, the ACE study was where it's asking questions about childhood. The best practices in the maltreatment field are actually to follow groups of people who are most at risk for this and to try to follow them and have actual documentation of this from Child Protective Services, et cetera, and to follow it forward. And there's a couple of groups that have done that. One is out of Mount Hope Center in Rochester. It's kind of the, the gold star of this entire research field. And theirs are interesting because it appears that a lot of the negative effects, at least on cognitive abilities, on self-control, on risk-taking behavior by adolescents, et cetera, are pretty comparable whether you were left alone for hours and hours after school before age 10 or so, which is a form of neglect, uh, versus you had explicit uh, physical, verbal, emotional, or sexual abuse. And once you're getting into the explicit abuse categories, a lot of times those are comor comorbid, so it's hard to differentiate the effects of one versus the other. But they do seem to have an additive effect. The more that was there, same thing as the ACE study, the more you're going to see some deficits long term. One of the things that I found really interesting, one of the, the questions or items on the ACE scale that I wouldn't have thought of was something about like um, community violence or, or living in a neighborhood, a place uh, that was where you were witnessed seeing violence happening in your neighborhood. And I thought that was something that uh, takes it up out from the individual or the individual's like parents um, to a larger community. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, what I was gonna mention was just like how big the witness piece is in the ACE scale. Cause it could be something like witnessing violence but it could be something like witnessing your parents having a mental health problem or witnessing a parent with a substance abuse problem, you might think like, oh, it doesn't directly, but it does, it does directly impact the child as well. And that's where you get, you could possibly get the higher um, scores on the ACE scale just by witness. Hmm. And it ties in actually, Georgina, what you're talking about with community is I think one of the keys from the TEDx that, or the TED ed, talk that inspired parts of this, but also one of the bigger findings is just, uh, it's easy to wave a hand at a lot of these and go, it's just that poverty begets bad circumstances, that poor neighborhoods are going to have so many of these things, et cetera. But it's so much more nuanced when they start to take large samples and they can control for certain things like that. And, and there are some things that are out of, out of people's control in many, many ways. Um, and they're still having negative effects long-term. The community piece is huge because that is one that's much less controllable and is overlaps heavily with poverty. Uh, and that's, I think the scariest piece of this is that uh, not to say it's easy to intervene into things happening in the household. That's not the case whatsoever. But when you exacerbate it by also community-based violence and community-based 
food scarcity, which is another piece of this, that's all that all plays into a, a scary context. Well, well, and it's interesting because when we talk about interventions, I mean, I know we're psychologists, but interventions don't have to happen with the individual, right? They can happen systemically and and societally. And um, and so it's, I mean, one of the things I love about that that TED talk is that she takes time to talk about prevention and and our unwillingness to act. To me, this is one more piece of data to suggest, to, to illustrate how bad poverty is. And it's also worth noting that allowing poverty is a choice that we have made as a society, you know, that, that this is a thing that we've said we're okay with. I'm not saying we, meaning the four of us, but as a society. Um, and so there are interventions available that we are simply just not embracing, um, which I think is highlighted in that as well as a lot of those other, you know, the, uh, other resources as well. So what are some of the impacts of these um, early childhood experiences that are um, traumatic or negative? What are some of the things that uh, the research is showing? I mean, so let me start by just giving the basic biology of why it impacts to then talk about the long-term pieces, because I think that's uh, one of the more shocking things that I talk about it in my neuroscience courses. It's a fascinating shift that happens and it happens across a whole host of different stressful early life experiences. So it seems to be the effect of stress early. Um, so all the different models come from either, uh, as I was talking about, maltreated youth that are followed forward, or there's a large population of kids that were raised in um, Eastern European orphanages in the late 80s, and then were adopted into enriched households in either uh, the UK or in Minnesota in the early 90s. And um, so those are all called uh, post-institutionalized youth studies. There's some also the Bucharest Early Intervention Project does something similar. All of them are slightly different forms of early life stress, but the, the key is there's a, a chaotic, relatively disorganized, unpredictable, and highly stressful situation happening to a system that's not ready to deal with stress. Um, so if we talk about our basic stress functioning, it's you have a fight or flight response that we're all aware of that, that motivates us to move. That's really based on our body's version of the equivalent of speed, an epinephrine uh, boost that, or a, a, yeah, it, an epinephrine boost that ends up happening and it's adrenaline. Adrenaline pumps our system, has us respond to things. That one isn't as problematic. That's actually the system that we expect to work. It's what should respond, but it should die out relatively quickly. We shouldn't continue to have that response or our system can't handle it. The more problematic one is an adaptive system. It's your cortisol response from the hypothalamic pituitary adrenals. Your HPA axis ends up taking a little bit longer than the SAM axis, your uh, sympathetic adrenal medullary, but the, the one producing adrenaline kicks adrenaline into your system, amps you up, gets you ready to respond. Then a slower acting system is sending uh, the secretion of cortisol into your blood and cortisol keeps you amped for a long, long period of time. It's what maintains that you have to respond to things. The problem is our bodies aren't designed to continue to respond in that high of an energetic state on a cellular metabolism. So there's actually evidence that kids who have um, these kinds of experiences early on and have those elevated cortisol systems 
end up yielding the death to cells within your hippocampus that are supposed to turn off cortisol. So it actually ends up becoming this downward spiral where because the cells are working so hard in, in a part of your brain, the hippocampus responsible for memory and for checking, do I need these kinds of things? Uh, do I need to maintain in a high stress state? End up dying out. So you're even less able to regulate those. And the problem is there's little to no evidence that we can really grow those back, which means that in, this is why the early life part matters so much is that when this happens at a developmental stage, it's killing off cells that are necessary to continue to regulate that for the rest of your life. So you end up seeing you, the stress responses in adolescence who had childhood maltreatment end up falling into two completely opposite groups. So you get one set of effects that kind of mirror uh, what the rats did in Mike Meany's studies. And those were all, they're hypersensitive. So they have an immediate spike of adrenaline, immediate high, high court level, way above, sometimes unpredictably above uh, a normative sample. And then you have this other group, uh, Michael Rudder out of the UK noticed this in his post-institutionalized youth, but his was, it was, he called it a stealing effect, but it's basically, it preps your system to, to be completely desensitized to stressors. And so they tended not to have, like in situations where you were seeing violence or gore that usually produces a sweat response and a heart rate response, et cetera, you saw none of that. You, you really saw little to no elevation above the baseline, which is a scary thing to think that a decade after this has ceased to exist, it still is impacting the physiology of your responses to emotional situations in a lot of these cases. And that's that's the basics behind it, but you can imagine if your responses then that build towards emotion are altered, it has a whole host of effects. So some of the effects I think Karsten can talk about in our own studies on empathy and morality, what kinds of differences are we seeing? Yeah, Karsten, I would love to hear about that. I wanted to shift to talk about the studies you two are doing right now. Yeah, we've been doing over the last, well, with COVID and everything, a little tricky, but over like about the last year, we've been working on different studies that use the ACE scale. And what we do is we basically are looking at how the ACE scale is affecting different things like your empathy, your morality later in life. So we have people come into the lab, we have them take a ACE scale, and we kind of give them a score similar to like how she talked in the, um, in the TED talk. And then we have them do certain tasks that either focus on things like executive function or empathy, morality, things like that. And basically what we're trying to look at is how much neural effort is being used um, when looking at like empathy tasks. And so the way that we do that is we show, I kind of talked about this last year on the um, podcast when we were getting ready for MPA, but we um, take we have the participants sit in front of a computer and we show them things that are like hands and feet in either painful or non-painful situations. And we ask them how sorry you feel for that individual in the picture. And what we wind up seeing is those that do have higher ACE scales, there's a bigger difference in the neural effort that's being used to process the pictures that they're seeing. So that means I know Dr. Kyle would talk more about this, but there's more of a response, whether that means that they're thinking about it more, they're just, there's more neural attention that's being put towards what they're seeing. So that could either be kind of a positive thing, 
more of a positive route or a negative route. That's what a little bit of a downside of an EEG is, but we are noticing a big difference. Could we possibly make it go more positive, like with some sort of training or like some of the preventions that, um, that the research has looked at? Is there a way that we could use that increased effort, like cognitive effort? I, I don't know if that's the right word, but could, for good, do you think? I feel like the prevention strategies that she talked about in the TED talk were really important. She talked about things that were like just catching things earlier. So what in our study, we um, are using adults at UW-Green Bay. And so it's a little bit past that. I mean, it's not past the point of getting help, but it's past the, usually these effects are already there and we just have to deal with these effects. Um, but one of the things she talked about in the TED talk was about how catching these signs early through using things like the ACE scale with children. So that could be, I know she talked about things like home visits or um, other just teaching skills to keep children mentally strong. And so that could look like a variety of different things, but um, just getting intervening sooner is always gonna be beneficial. And that's, if I can jump in, Carson, you're absolutely right. That's that's exactly where it's, the timing of intervention matters so much in this case. Uh, and, and I think it's beyond, so obviously there's ones where it's identification, potentially at the doctor's office, et cetera. You run into issues always with, these are self or parent report surveys. So it's hard to actually implement that kind of practical piece. Um, so I like to think about it in a slightly different way. And there's a really cool literature from uh, Robert Pianta. So this would have been in the 90s or early 2000s. He has a ton of literature about the effect that early education and intervention from an education system can yield. And that to me feels really promising. So one of the things he talks a ton about is that the attachment pieces that Ryan was mentioning. So reactive attachment is now in the DSM, but when we were talking about it, then it was all about disorganized attachment or a, a different type of attachment that had to do with unpredictable interactions between the, the parent or primary caregiver and kid. And Bob Pianta was coming out of the attachment literature and was going, yeah, but we can't really intervene effectively before age 18 months when we're trying to get in and, and shift the secure base from which to explore these, the, the ways that parents and kids are interacting. It's hard to do right away. So what if we're late? What if we do jump in, in in kindergarten when we can? What happens? And it turns out there's a really nice set of buffering effects that happen from a primary, uh, it's called a teacher-child bond, but it's the equivalent of an attachment relationship to an early teacher that happens in the first three to four years of education that seems to have a buffering effect enough that those kids go on to look relatively average in later life as compared to at extreme deficit. And that's across academic success and mental health at least. I don't know the physical health sides, but I thought that to me was, uh, was a really promising piece to be able to step in and go, well, what can we do in the education systems then to be able to yield the ability for a, a mentorship style model in kindergarten and first grade and second grade uh, to really get at that? I was thinking about that um, piece as well um, for kids who are like raised by their grandparents or like some other adult 
like steps in and provides like a healthy, warm and loving relationship uh, is such a gift to the child at an early age who is struggling in an environment that is um, providing that early life stress. And so, um, and that could be at school, it could be a, a teacher, uh, but it could also be in the neighborhood, it could be, you know, in your family. And I think as common as these things are, it kind of is a call to action to all of us um, to be that loving and warm adult um, to many kids, you know, like if you have the opportunity um, to provide that gift to a kid is a great uh, prevention strategy, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree, of course, agree with all of that. And, and I, but I also think there's an obligation here for us to, to in addition to that, for, for us to be thinking about broader, I mean, broader systemic change on issues like this, right? Some of you may have seen this research study came out out of Duke University just uh, last month, September 20th, five years after the water crisis, one in five Flint, Michigan residents have post-traumatic stress disorder, right? This is, this is a decision made by leaders that, that had this kind of demonstrable impact. And, and, it, and I think I'm, I'm still, I'm really stuck with something you said earlier, Jason, about at a certain at a certain point, it feels too late, right? To to intervene in a meaningful way. Um, maybe there's there's interventions we can make in a somewhat meaningful way. But the thing is, I think what I keep coming back to is we as psychologists and of course uh, as sociologists, um, we know the circumstances in which many of these uh, adverse experiences happen. And we as a society can take steps to prevent those circumstances. And, and so much of what we're talking about, we have a tendency to think of these things as individual failures somehow, but they are at, at least in part societal and systemic failures uh, that we, we aren't seriously addressing. To me, in addition to all of the things you're saying, which are right on, there's also, I think, another call to action here, which is embrace meaningful change to prevent the circumstances we're talking about. Um, and instead of trying to intervene after the fact, or along with, I should say, uh, trying to intervene after the fact. It, yeah, go ahead, Karsten. Looks like you have something to add. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like a lot of that comes from changing the way that people think about ACE. Because when if you're going to bring up adverse childhood experiences, I feel like a lot of people are going to go right to the physical abuse, mental abuse, mm -hmm. things like that, but they don't really consider how how big the other um, things, like seeing a parent yell at each other, the mental health issues in parents, how that could, like preventing that and preventing the stigma against that, mm -hmm. then you can go through and, you know, shift how, shift the focus from more of the, like, this is an individual problem to this is a whole community problem. This isn't something that's just going to change on individual levels. This is something that needs like a much broader change. Yeah. I was hoping we could take a minute here to just gather some, some final thoughts, you know, as we kind of put all this together. Um, Carson, I don't know if you want to count that last one as your final thought. It was, a, it was a great one, but if you have anything else you want to add, please, uh, please throw it out. But, but maybe we go around the horn here a little bit, Jason, what are your sort of final thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually, mine tied directly off of what Carson said, which is 
redefining the norm, I think is really important here to understand that uh, things that may have seemed normal 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, have very real effects on physical and mental health. And frankly, always have. And that we're, that we're now understanding it more tells us, hey, we need to shift these things that just because it happened to someone doesn't mean that it's okay to happen to others. And I think that's a mentality that we need to start to embrace is that things are shifting in this. We have a better understanding of how even witnessing trauma is in and of itself negative for mental health consequences later in life. I think that's a fascinating thing that we really need to start to triple down on. Excellent. Oh, you're muted. I would add to that, that um, I think um, there's like bystander training um, happening at our university and other places as well. So that um, witnessing something becomes less passive and more active. And I think um, training kids early uh, that they don't have to passively witness terrible things happening, but that they have the agency, perhaps, depending on the cir circumstances, to intervene and training uh, people how to intervene is really important too. Mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, just as my final thought would be, um, I'm, it makes me, it gives me a lot of hope knowing that all of this um, research and science is still happening. Um, and I'm really, I like how in the TED talk, if you get the chance, definitely watch it To um, She talks about how it's not an attack. This isn't an attack on things that have already happened. Um, nobody's, it's not even like a judgment thing either. It's not about judging the parents that have already, that this has already happened to, the judging the kids that this is already happening to. It's just about change and about changing, like getting these long lasting negative effects on your health, your well-being. It's changing it and changing the norm, changing the stigma. Yeah, I I um I love all of that, and I I will I think we're gonna post I don't think we are gonna post that uh, TED talk along with this, um, so people can easily find it. So it'll be on the um it'll be on all the right science along with the podcast, but also I'll make sure to share it out on social media in many places. Um, it is an excellent TED talk, and uh, Georgina, can you say the name of it real quick? Because I can't find I don't have it up right now. Sure, it is um, by Nadine Burke Harris, and it is titled The Lifelong Impacts of Childhood Trauma. It is really fabulous, truly, truly, truly one of my favorites. Um, and so please give that a watch. Um, you know, and I, I will just say, I, I've actually, um, one of the things that always concerns me as a, as a psychologist is are the ways in which I watch sort of the landscape changing um, as far as the language uh, we use and what those words mean um, and how the, the phrases that we talk about change over time, right? And I started out talking about the difference between how the DSM talks about trauma and what we're talking about today. This is a case where I am actually not at all concerned. I'm, I'm glad to see this change happening. And I think for all of the reasons we talked about that, that what, what, what Carson and Jason said about changing the norm is really important, that we need to think of trauma more broadly uh, than we currently do. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and thank you for, uh, for the cool work you're doing. I hope um, as, as results come in, we can talk more about those. So um, real quick, uh, Jason, where can people learn more about your lab, broadly speaking? Is there anywhere in particular if people want to find out more about the work you do? 
you know, we don't have a ton of presence online yet, uh, but that is actively in the works. So we're trying to finish okay. off a web page right now. So hopefully I will have a web page for you next time to say, <laughs> go find us here. Um, <laughs> All right. But in the meantime, uh, a lot of our posters and everything are available at different conferences and they're posting them online. So you can see Carson's work from MPA from last year posted online right now on their website through Midwest Psych Association. One, and if you search for Jason Cowell, at UW-Green Bay, you will find uh, a lot of his work, including his faculty page. So there's more information about Jason there. Um, I want you to make sure you check out Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's at Psych and Stuff. Good place to ask questions, request topics for episodes, things like that. You can follow me in all of the different social places at Anger Professor. Georgina, where are you? I am at Georgina WD, so G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. Outstanding. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is me, Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Lees. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Jason Cowell and Karsten Cowan. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungis. Keep being amazing. Mm -hmm.